Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone. I'm in the studio today with Dr. Ray Hodgson, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynaecology with New South Wales Uni. Dr. Ray's been in here before talking about prolapse and health for the over 50s women and I'm really pleased to have him back here today talking about a book he's written called Heartbreak in the Himalayas. Welcome Ray. Oh, Thanks Karen, it's lovely to be back. It's really great to have you here because I know this has been such a passion and you've put how long into writing this book? Oh, I started um, almost three years ago. It was, it was Easter uh, 2016, so it, it's another month away before it would be three years. People don't realise how much time and effort goes into writing a book. Either that or I'm just a very slow writer. Or you've just locked yourself in your office just <laughs> for the heck of being in the office in front of a computer. <laughs> no, it's a very time-consuming process and I'm really proud of you for taking the time to do that. Oh, good on you, Karen. Well, it's, I have to say, really fulfilling, even though, as you say, it's been literally thousands of hours. It's, there's a, there's a fulfilment that goes with it. And you would, you would know that, I'm sure, having, being an author yourself. Yeah, but when you say it in thousands of hours, you just go, oh my goodness, where did that time go? Yeah, yeah, it does. It's a bit of, uh, I'm not sure if you felt this yourself, but it, in some ways, the writing, when you, when you really get into it and, the, and you're, you're engrossed in the writing at any particular time, it's almost like a meditation. Uh, hours will go by and you look up at the clock and you, and you have no idea that, uh, that, you've, that you've spent that amount of time writing and, until you actually look at the clock. Yeah, you do get lost in time, don't yeah, you? And, yeah. and for me, I used to wake up in the middle of the night and suddenly have this brainwave of ideas and just get up and do it then yeah and, and i do I, had a, I, I go to sleep and I still do with a, a pen next to my next to my bed a pen and paper an old-fashioned pen and paper rather than looking at a, a screen on your computer or on your on your iphone um and and I, an idea will come so often in the middle of the night and i write like that too mm. and i write in the dark without turning it on and sometimes deciphering the next <laughs> day or i've written over the top of something else mm. ray i wanted to talk about why you wrote this book. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Well, we, we um, we've been travelling to Nepal a few times a year for um, this is the ninth year now to do our camps for treating these women and teaching the local doctors and nurses and midwives and and there seems to be a lot of interest when we come back from our trips and we come back home here. There's a lot of interest that people have in what we've been doing and the adventures we get up to. And, and the trials and the tribulations of, of what goes on. So I thought that would probably lend itself to a book. But the other thing we're doing, as you, as you mentioned, is we're building a hospital in remote Nepal, a, a hospital for mothers and babies to improve their health. And I, f- I felt if the book was successful in any way, we would have more income coming in to fund the hospital. Mm. So every cent that of a book sale, that's uh, every cent of profit, will go to fund this construction of the Mothers and Babies Hospital. I want to step back to something you said about nine years ago. Why did you choose Nepal? Yeah, well, so I, 
volunteering. I'd, I'd love being a gynaecologist and obstetrician in Australia. I'd love my job. And I'd, I've often said if I had my life over again, I, nothing would change as far as that mm-hmm. career goes. But there was something missing uh, in those years after I qualified and practised as a gynaecologist here, as much enjoyment as I got. I'd see those images on TV of, of people suffering in developing countries, and it sounds a bit corny, but they made me think that while we're doing our bit here in our own very privileged country, we we surely can do more elsewhere. And, and so I joined various volunteer organisations, medical volunteer organisations, and helped out in places like India and remote Thailand. Very good um, charity organisations and, and did some good, but that was general medical work. And I some satisfaction with that, but I wasn't. I felt I wasn't really using the skills I'd been trained for. I wasn't using my gynaecology skills, my the surgery um, skills that, that that you're trained for as a gynaecologist. So, how it ultimately eventually happened is I was sitting in my office about ten years ago now at Port Macquarie, and a patient came in and sat down. We started talking about her thesis. She just mm. completed a thesis on what she called uterine prolapse in Nepal. And I whizzed her and talked about that. And I, I said to her, why Nepal? Why, why that country? And she said, don't you realise that there is more prolapse, there is more genital prolapse in that country than anywhere else in the world? And I didn't know that. And I thought, well, here we go. This may be an opening. I, that's an awful metaphor. In gynecology. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, not um, even going to go there. <laughs> please don't. Um, but, uh, and I thought, well, what I'll do, I'll join some um, other charity organisation that, um, that provides surgery for those women suffering with that in Nepal. And we looked around and there wasn't anything that existed. So we thought to ourselves, we'll bugger it, we'll start our own organisation. And that's how it began. <laughs> and you've told me before about these women in Nepal and how there is such a huge amount of women suffering, is there a reason why? We don't know for sure. There's a lot of women suffering. The two main things they suffer from are this genital prolapse where organs fall out through the vagina, but they also suffer from, from maternal problems, from pregnancy problems, where they are at a much higher chance of losing their lives during the pregnancy and a much higher chance of losing the baby's life during the pregnancy or immediately afterwards. So they're the two areas. The maternal health, neonatal health is one area, and the prolapse is the other. Why do they suffer with those? We can't find a single reason, but the prolapse, it seems to be partly because they lift heavy loads, they're expected to carry lots of loads Mm. on their backs during pregnancy as well, and immediately postpartum. It's a culture over there that does that. They they have a very poor diet in, in the remote areas that we go to. They have very little protein in their diet. There's probably something in their genetic structure as well that makes their tissues weaker and more susceptible to prolapse, probably. But part of what we're doing is a lot of research into identifying those exact causes. So it's not just about fixing the issue. Mm. It's about finding out and determining why it's happening. So perhaps then you can work on other aspects of solving their problems. Exactly. The other thing I must point out with the prolapse, we have prolapse in Australia, we have prolapse, genital prolapse in any country in the world, but it's less common here and it's usually fixed in the early stages. But one of the other features over there, apart from being far, far more prevalent, is it tends to happen in younger women. So we see women in their 20s and sometimes even their teens with organs falling out through the vagina. And In Australia, it's rare in those age groups. It's much, much more common after the age of 50. I've got one other question before we go to a song. You talked about women in their teens. Are these women already 
had children or it's even before they have children? It's almost always after they've had children. We've seen one or two. It was very hard to explain why they would have their organs fall out without having children, but by far the majority are those who have had at least one children and, and, and usually more. Everybody Hurts. That's a song that you chose today. I did. That's a song, as um, I guess many people would know, about depression and I guess people with suicidal thoughts. I think my take on this song, which I find quite moving, is I picture the, the singer, R.E.M., singing to somebody who is suffering with suicidal thoughts. Uh, it's got nothing to do with what we're doing over there. But I, I would say this, if I can say one thing. Depression is an extremely common problem. It's, it's ubiquitous in our society and, and others. One thing I have noticed in the years that we've been doing research and watching volunteers help with what we're doing in Nepal and help here in Australia with what we're doing in Nepal, with people who volunteer their time, is that is such a wonderful way to prevent depression or even to help treat depression, to give part of yourself, to, to show your concern for other people somehow has this almost magical ability to relieve your own feelings of sadness and depression. I don't really understand that, but it's something I've seen time and time again. There is a saying, it's better to give than receive. Hmm. And whatever the gift of time that you give to something is so important. And, and I know for the over 50s, a lot of people take on a charity after they've retired at the baby boomers, a lot of them are involved in charities and I think that's really important. Mm. There's a couple of other things I want to talk about with mental health, just related to what you said before, but after our song. Fine. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. Today here in the studio I have with me Dr Ray Hodgson, an obstetrician and gynaecologist and we're talking about Nepal and a book that he is launching next week called Heartbreak in the Himalayas and this book is based on a true story. We were just talking about suicide before the song. Ray, about suicide, how common is suicide in Nepal in these subsistence areas? Yeah, it's very appropriate, really, when you're playing that song, and, and um, that's just, it's uh, almost coincidental. Suicide, depressed mood changes, particularly depression, and, and suicide itself is a massive, massive problem in the rural areas of Nepal. We're talking about where 80% of the population live. And the statistic, which probably brings that home, is that the commonest cause of death in women in Nepal, women who are between the ages of 15 and 50, is suicide. The commonest cause of death in that reproductive age group is suicide. And that's, uh, that's the tip of the iceberg, is, is suicide. And that, that speaks volumes to those who, who must be suffering depression in its um, various degrees of severity that don't even reach that state. It's a massive problem, it's a simple answer. And why is suicide so prevalent for these women? Yeah, the, their health problems are the major cause of that. There's no doubt in my mind. These women who suffer with genital prolapse, and, I, and, I, and your, your listeners may not be all aware of the, the implications of severe genital prolapse, but they are people who suffer with that, suffer with pain and discharge and usually incontinence. They, um, they, they, these women, I, their identity is these women who are 
working in rural Nepal, they're on a farm with their husband, their family. Their identity is a, a wife who, who cares for her family, who works on the farm and um, you know, provides cooking and cleaning, and does the domestic duties. That's her identity. When you suffer with severe prolapse, you, you can't do those things. You can't work physically. You spend, it's hard to spend time on your feet. Mm. You can't cook and clean and look after the husband. You can't provide uh, sexual intercourse for him either. And they lose their identity. And, and I have to say, as, as, as awful as it sounds, many, many women are abandoned because of that. Their husband sees his wife who can no longer help out physically around the farm, can no longer satisfy him sexually in bed. So she's abandoned and it's, uh, it, it's, uh, she's socially ostracised because that's a, that's a social stain simply to be abandoned from your family. Your own parents will often not take you back in because of that. Family law and property law in Nepal is appalling. It exists, but the application of that law is terrible. So she doesn't get half the goats and half the mud hut they're living in. She's often got nothing. Now, I've got to qualify all of that. There are some wonderful, wonderful Nepalese men, and I, I certainly don't. It's not a, for a second. This isn't a you know a thing about the men. It's not no you know tarring it, tarring them. It's really just fact about what but, does and can happen. That's right. There are, there are many men who are so supportive of their women, caring, come along to our camps with the, with their wives, and that's fantastic. But there's a significant proportion who throw their hands up and get rid of her and bring on another woman, and it's, a, it's an awful side of it. So, so that sort of background, these women are often suffering in silence as well. They don't want to tell their friends or neighbours or relatives why they can't work, and they're accused of being lazy and... It's taboo to talk about genital areas in, in, in um, remote Nepal. So, so there's so many factors coming in that these women suffer enormously, emotionally as well as physically. Can you describe the camps? Oh, yeah, they're primitive. They're very primitive. We're working in remote areas usually. Um, so the medical facilities are, are really very primitive. And um, you know, we spend a couple of days cleaning the rooms that we're going to convert into operating theatres when the, when the camp fully starts. The women uh, hear about the, the camps through... Uh, what they call FM radio. They're very, very <laughs> proud of their FM yeah, radio. Yeah, FM radio, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so they'll they'll um, often walk four days you know, in significant discomfort to come along to the camps if their husbands will let them. <laughs> and uh, and they'll queue up for they'll queue up for hours and well, overnight sometimes to have their, their treatment with us. Yeah. And to have an ultrasound and and to see a picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ultrasound's another another side of it too. The the cultural problems are enormous over there, and, and uh, I've mentioned that some of the husbands or some of the mother-in-laws won't want the women to come along, and if they're pregnant, they won't want them to come to join the camp because it's more important they're looking after the goats and getting food on the table. So we struggle enormously with those patriarchal cultural difficulties, and, and um, this was an accidental discovery that when we started providing ultrasound for women who are pregnant, suddenly women and their husbands were coming from everywhere to come to the clinic to have their ultrasound on of their baby. Couldn't get them to come to the antenatal clinic we set up in the labour ward before. When we have an ultrasound session, they'll over mountains, sit down for a couple of hours or longer in a room waiting for their ultrasound. Not because they care about fetal welfare, they just want to see, see a picture a of their baby. Oh, I just think it's priceless. <laughs> oh, it's good. I mean, while they're there, while they're sitting there for a couple of hours, we show videos of breastfeeding and hygiene and, and the nurses vaccinate them and take their blood pressure. So we introduced ultrasound in an effort to detect the high-risk babies and hopefully reduce the number of losses of mums and babies purely from that direct effect of ultrasound identifying high-risk pregnancies. That's why we introduced it. But 
I'm sure we are saving more lives simply through women coming in and we're picking up these other problems of high blood pressure or not being vaccinated or severely anemic and these other potential causes of loss of mums and babies. It's amazing that you... Well, it's brilliant, not amazing. It's brilliant that you're taking advantage of that captive audience once Mm. you've got them there in these clinics that you can teach them about breastfeeding, hygiene, all those things that are going to help them in the long run. Mm. Ray, are there any other challenges that, you know, we talked a little bit about challenges, but there are any other specific challenges you're finding with your Nepal project? Yeah, our, our, um, our project, the focus at the moment is building this hospital, and that's got its challenges. But I guess if I can speak more broadly about the challenges we have, there's obviously the medical challenges of having scarce supplies and, and very basic equipment and so forth. That's that's fairly obvious, and the you know, we have to improvise with with equipment and, and swabs and all that sort of thing that often run very low and the electricity goes out. At Nepal has a, a grid sharing system, so virtually every day the electricity goes oh. off for some hours that we operate in torchlight. I can't. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> There's really interesting pictures, I guess, of, of us operating under torchlight and people holding these, these handheld torches. So that goes out. They're the sort of physical challenges. And one of the things we talk about in the book is... The other type of challenges, which is this cultural challenge. This, it's an extremely patriarchal country. Certainly the rural areas is, is extremely patriarchal. And it makes you tear your hair out sometimes that I touched on before. Women, women are not allowed to come into the hospital. They're not allowed to have their babies in the hospital. Most of these maternal deaths and deaths of babies happen at home. That's a vast majority. Mm. You know, if they're going to have a hemorrhage or they're going to have a, you know, extreme blood pressure problems and severe preeclampsia and so forth, by the time that happens, if, if they've had no antenatal care, it's too late. They'll, they'll try to bring them to the hospital uh, once these emergencies develop. But there's so there's no roads. You're talking about tracks over and, and uh, over mm. mountains and often a day or more trip carrying this woman in there. By the time she's arrived to us, she's often dead. And the baby's dead. And it's, that's the culture which leads to that problem. And culture leads to the children, the women, the girls, not going beyond school past the ages of about 12 or 13 or 14 in the majority of situations. Their parents feel that she, their daughter, uh, will be of more value at home helping out with the chores and, and collecting the firewood and tending to the animals than she will um, with an education. Once she's, uh, once she's married, she leaves her home and she lives with the... The, the, the husband's family and and what's the point of educating someone we're just uh, we're just doing her parents in law a favor that's a waste of our money we leaves the family when she's married that that sort of thing I and mean, education lack of education that continuous cycle therefore more poverty more poor health and and, and it goes on and on so that's that's the other challenge we have and mm. And who are we uh, coming from another country to point our finger at these people and say that that is wrong. You can't do that. That's the wrong way to be. This is the right way to be. We can be accused of cultural imperialism if we do that. So how do we how do we tackle that? It is an enormous challenge that we face with that. But one of the big themes running through the book is exactly that. It's such a contrast to here, isn't it, in how we want to educate our women. We choose for them now to have great educations and to go on and be as successful as they possibly can. Mm. So that's a huge difference. It is, isn't it? And it, you know, and it's ironic, isn't it? The, the culture of Nepal—it's one of its most precious things. We, the culture we all admire in so many respects. It's a serene culture. It's 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 a mystical kind of culture, and it's it's one of the big reasons people love to travel to Nepal as, as tourists because that culture is just so wonderful. 
but it's got its dark side as well. And, and the dark side of that culture leads to a lot of suffering with these women. And that's, that's one of our biggest challenges to, to get around that. Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. Hmm. Yeah, we need, a, we need a more cheery song about this time, don't we? Yeah, do you <laughs> yeah. love this song? I do. It's, uh, it, it's a song that makes you smile. And, and, and the, that video clip from, I guess, 20 or 30 years ago where he pulls Courtney Cox up onto the stage and mm. dances with her, that's, uh, that's a, whether that was staged or not, and it probably was, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful end to that song, which is a cheery, bouncy song, which we really do need right now, I suspect. Welcome back. You're listening to 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. To find out more, go to the website rnb.org.au. My guest today is Dr. Ray Hodgson, talking about his book, Heartbreak in the Himalayas. Ray, you're obviously very passionate about equity for women. Why? Yeah, maybe that does that sound strange as a guy having having a passion about equity for for women, and it's true, and it's grown over the years. And why would that be? I'm sure part of it is, is I'm a gynaecologist, and I see these women suffering because of inequity, because of the the way they're sort of trampled upon. And 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 I know a way to f- overcome this suffering will be to overcome the inequity. It's probably also I have two daughters. I have two gorgeous go- daughters who are in their twenties now, and. and I, rightly or wrongly, I look at some of the women suffering, and I think, if you were my daughter suffering like this, with preventable, avoidable conditions, uh, I would be screaming in, 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 in rage because that's, that's, this shouldn't happen. Mm. We live in a country where our health is so good. Yes, our health system can be improved; it can always be improved. But we are so privileged in our country, and I, I know that the reason that. Uh, Nepal's not the only country, but uh, women in developing countries whose whose health suffers is because of inequity. That's why I have such a passion in overcoming this inequity. And we don't realise sitting here in Australia, well, many of us have travelled a lot and we do understand that there's huge differences in other countries, especially when it comes to medical, but it's not in our face. So we don't tend to think about it in the way you have because you've seen it from a doctor's point of view yeah it's difficult Karen when things are in your face it's far easier for people to take an active role in overcoming those things if somebody in your own street or living close to you has a problem and they need a hand uh, to get their cat out of a tree or to help them because they're financially struggling or whatever you're much more likely to do that or if it's a local cause national a national cause you're more likely to to want to get involved with that so we who are among many charities who targets his people suffering are a long way away living in a different culture it's a hard sell there are so many charities out there and unfortunately some shonky ones it's a difficult sell when it's not in your face and i we constantly try to work out how we get around that and i guess it's writing a book and having talks and social media information out there that uh, tries to put it into people's face we we shouldn't ignore that. We would not put up with this sort of suffering with women's health in our own country. There would be placards. There would be... Outrage. There would be outrage. There would be marches in the street. If women were suffering in our own country and babies suffering in our own country with preventable conditions, we wouldn't stand for it. We shouldn't stand for it in another country, even if it is on the other side of the world. Poppy, she is your 
main character in this book. Is Poppy a real person? Tell us about Poppy. <laughs> yeah, I love the name, by the way. Yeah. Everybody is real in the book. Um, some people uh, take on characters of more than one person, but, but they, are, they, all, they, are, they are all based on, on real people, including Poppy. Poppy, Poppy is, is an intriguing character in real life, and, uh, and I really hope that comes out in the book. To give a background about Poppy, the, the typical girl and woman in Nepal is painfully shy. Hmm. When you go up to speak to them, they'll cringe and usually not answer you and not look you in the eye. And, you know, that probably has some, I'm sure it has some benefits because there is this stranger danger and, you know, child trafficking is is an issue in Nepal. It's part of the problem. They're so shy that they don't stand up for what they should. Poppy, and I still don't know why, is exception to that rule. She she just stands out. She's got some grit. She will mm. look at you in the eye and she was a little bit cheeky and she she's intelligent and she wants to learn and she's not shy. She's not arrogant and painfully boisterous but she's got a poise about her which intrigued us and still does intrigue us and the reason she's such an important character in the book is she is the hope for women in Nepal. If if someone like Poppy can can have some, some grit and some poise and some confidence, maybe there's other women out there, and maybe she can inspire other girls and women out there. I love the cover. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that represents Poppy on the front with the um, Himalayan mountain peaks in the background, yeah. Oh, it's just, and she's so in thought. Yeah, 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 that's, um, that's meant to capture exactly that. It's absolutely gorgeous. What else can you tell us about the book that you want to share now before people read it? Oh, well, yeah. So my favourite sort of book is one that's entertaining. Um, you know, ideally, you're on the edge of your seat and you experience the highs and lows of the, of the characters through the story. But it's also a book where you learn something, where you're actually educated about the background of the book. And it might be a historical thing or a current day thing, but you, you learn about society. You learn about a group of people. And that's what I've tried to do here. Is I've tried to make it entertaining, and I, and I know, I know, through reactions of, of of friends to reading various chapters, I know, I know it's entertaining at times, and I, I hope the majority of people share that same enjoyment, uh, entertainment. But if people can walk away with that, but also having learned some really important things about Nepal and 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 why there are problems with the culture and why there are problems with infectious diseases and why there's a problem with child trafficking and, and that horrible, horrible chow party. A woman is banished because she's having a period. She's banished to a shed in the backyard and she can't touch certain foods and animals and walk over the street because she's having a period or because she's having some bleeding immediately after having a baby. If people can learn that in the context of characters in the book, then then I've achieved what I want to. Do you know I'm not going to get anything done for the next week because I'm going to be reading your book? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> but it is a journey that you're taking people on and a very, very important journey. Hmm. And your hmm. journey is also about raising funds to help these women and uh, to build a hospital, which is really amazing. And you're doing so much background work toward that. Do you want to tell us some about something about all the work and the name of your charity and what you're actually doing. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Yeah, there is, I'm, I suggest that I'm the only person working this. I ha- yeah, I happen to be the leader, that's, that, that's fine, but there are a lot of 
other people in the background and, and the foreground who, who are helping out. There's a lot of volunteers here in Australia and overseas in Nepal. Well, it does take a village, we know that. So, yes. you know, it's like a village to raise a family. Mm. And this is the village that you're building to actually raise the funds to develop programs and a hospital and train people to do this very important work. You're right. And the word you'd use then, which is spot on, is training people. It's it's not a sustainable project to just simply go over and provide medical care to people and try and, um, try and overcome the problems that way. We've got to train, and we do train as many doctors and nurses and midwives as we can. We, when, I, when I come back from a trip overseas, when our team gets back, uh, back to Australia, people often say, um, oh, well done, you've, you've done another trip to Nepal, well done, good on you, welcome back. How many people did you treat? How many operations did you do? It's not about that, is it? No, I say to them, I look at them in the eye, and I say, wrong question, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Oops! No, maybe I don't say idiot. You don't say idiot. The, the, the right, You're too polite. <laughs> the right question is, how many operations and how many people are being seen now that you're back in Australia? How many local people are carrying on that work? And that's, that's, that's one of the clues to sustainability. The whole top floor of our hospital is purely for teaching. Mm. We're we've, 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 we're in the process of negotiating people to donate um, these these computer simulated models of patients um, who, who can suffer. Um, and we, we teach our own medical students this here in Australia. It's amazing. Uh, it's it's uh, it's it's similar to I guess the simulation um, equipment that pilots have to 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 learn and to cope with various emergencies. So that we train our own uh, medical students and doctors here in Australia with those things. We want to have. Um, as many of those types of simulated models as we can in Nepal as well. Um, so that a, a, a midwife working in the hospital may not come across a, a, complica- a complication like, um, you know, a, a umbilical cord prolapsing down through the, through the vagina in labour. It's an extreme emergency where the umbilical cord falls out uh, during labour. And, you know, that, that's, uh, that's many, most of those babies won't survive. And, and if they do, they're often neurologically damaged. So that, just as an example... But you might not only come, you might not come across that for for some years. It might be years before you've seen one of those. And if you've got a computer model where you practice that thing regularly, you practice that emergency, and it's one of many possible emergencies. If you've got a computer model with that, and and it, it's realistic, that's the way to improve maternal health and and neonatal health in in our own country. But it's also a way to improve that massively where that sort of loss of life is so prevalent. And you're not always hands-on on these operations. You're overseeing this work and standing by letting local doctors work. Is that correct? That's is that correct, what you're yeah. doing? Yeah, and it is correct. And we've trained many doctors and we've trained some to be trainers themselves. And um, that in itself has got some challenges. They, they, they love to learn and they soak up this information like sponges. It's very rewarding, but... The problem we have is a more exaggerated version of the problem we have here. Most of the doctors don't want to continue practicing in the remote areas that we've trained. Mm. They, you know, there's far more income for them if they go to Kathmandu or they travel to another country. And this, it's not purely a selfish thing because with their family, they, there's better education available for them if they travel to a city. So that's it's been a challenge. The way we've got around that is that the degree that we then will provide them with once they've trained to be, say, a surgeon in gynaecology, is not a specialist degree. It's a We call it a general practice surgery degree. So that does not allow them to practice in Kathmandu or to go to um, Pakistan or, or India or somewhere where they can use that skill to, to legally practice. So, so that, that's the way that we don't just teach them to do 
genital prolapse surgery and caesarean sections, the other doctors will come in and teach them how to take out someone's appendix and how to fix a broken arm and put a spinal block in. So they are true general practitioners, um, but they're also general surgeons where they don't have that ability to, to use their skills elsewhere. Congratulations mm. on thinking outside the square. No, that wasn't my idea, by oh, the way. Oh, okay. So <laughs> yeah. who came up with the idea of that? How did you... Yeah. You must have sat down and brainstormed a lot of these mm. things with the partners that are, you're going up there with and, yeah, that and we, working. We yeah, and that's right. And we, we've got some tremendous people, local Nepalese people, who, who not, not in the village we're working, but in a village four hours away where, where they're our sister organisation in Nepal. And, and they've been extremely valuable for, for ideas like that. We, and, and we can't just walk into any village and just say, well, um, we're coming, we're from Australia, we know what you want, we're going to provide this. We, that's, that's arrogance and you're much less likely to get people on. So what you need, and it's the same with any international aid organisation, you need to get, you need to find the people who are those who organise and those who are looked up to in the, in the village that you're working in and you ask them, what do you need from us and how can you help us? To do it any other way is not going to work mm. and it's, it's cultural arrogance in any case. Reckless. Reckless. Manly. That's just after the statement you said. Yeah. <laughs> Reckless. Reckless. Cultural madness. Yes. Reckless. Yes, Australian crawl. James Rain. I love this song. It, it, partly because it's got Manly Ferry and, and Karen, you and I both spend a fair bit of time in Manly and and uh, it has its um, all its images that Manly Ferry um, brings in. But it's talking about ways that we should avoid being rest, reckless and trying to work out how that's going to actually imply. I love apply James Rain. <laughs> I saw James Rain after, oh, I think it was once at Bondi Beach and we'd just been riding our bikes. We'd put our bikes on the ferry and ridden to Bondi Beach. With James Rain. And we were James Raining in the rain. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> reckless. Hmm. You are listening to Radio Northern Beaches 88.7 and 90.3, your community radio station. Welcome back to Dr. Ray Hodgson uh, in the studio with me today, talking about his book, Heartbreak in the Himalayas. The title, Heartbreak, Ray. Hmm. Where did the heartbreak come from? Yeah, it's... um Probably no surprise to you with what we've been talking about to say that uh, so many of these women are heartbroken when, they, um, when they're so disfigured, when they suffer so physically and emotionally and lose their babies. That's that clearly one aspect of the heartbreak. But the other which, which I wanted to explore in the book is the volunteers are heartbroken as well. And when we lose a patient, it's... <laughs> that's not a nice thing to talk about as well but you we all lose patients here in australia there are there are terminal diseases and there are some things we just can't can't fix that we'd love to Uh, it it, it's a it's really difficult of course it goes without saying for some reason when we lose a mum or a baby overseas it that for some reason it kind of hits harder you may not even know that person and, and that's the other heartbreak the heartbreak is that we we get a lot of fulfillment as volunteers and we're helping out and there's a lot of satisfaction from that, but mixed with that, there's a significant proportion of people we can't help at this stage. Ray, you said about losing a patient overseas, hmm. and not everyone said, I, I know of two women in the last four years who have lost their life in childbirth here in Australia. Hmm. Now, we don't hear about it very often, but it does happen. It does happen. We, we we should be proud of ourselves that we in Australia have the 
you know the equal lowest um, maternal death rate in the world. It's you know it's around about six or seven per hundred thousand live births. So you're more likely in the in the nine month period of a pregnancy, you're more likely to die as a, from a motor vehicle accident than you are from the complication of the pregnancy. That that sort of puts that in perspective. Multiply that by one hundred. The chances of losing your life in places like Nepal, not, not, not Nepal as a country overall, because some births are in places like the cities like Kathmandu and Pokhara, but in the rural areas, the rural areas where 80% of the population live, 100 times the chances of losing your life. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we often consider that, or we, we think you might lose a baby, a stillborn during, during a, a pregnant, during a birth, but, hmm. you know, we don't often really think about the mum losing a life and that's you know that's mm. what shocked me and I actually secondhand know someone that you know I know her parents and mm. I was like oh my gosh mm. never and they were so excited about having their first grandchild and the grandchild survived mm. but the mum didn't mum didn't yeah and it, it, it is shocking in any part of the world and and uh, you can you can imagine how it affects the whole group of volunteers when we lose a mum overseas, and it, it's usually because the, she's gotten to us too late, and she's she's um, by the time she reaches our camp, it's um, it, it's uh, it's just she's too far gone. True story. Hmm. You told me how you you put all this together. You've been keeping diaries. Oh, well before the, well before the um, the trips to Nepal started. I've got one of these. Unusual people who writes a diary every night. I've done that for the last twenty-seven years. Do you now. leave it on your bedside table? Can I sneak in and read it? <laughs> You're not getting the secrets. The You're... secrets of Doctor Ray. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting nowhere near my bedroom. <laughs> oh, shucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it does make it easier. It was one of the things that made it easier during the during the writing was to to um, get. The, get, get some of those entries from the diaries and and, uh, and find them and just work out exactly what was happening when and where. Ray, we've talked a lot about the book. We've talked a lot about the issues um, in Nepal and the challenges, and I've absolutely loved hearing all this. You talked about Shonky, or you mentioned Shonky Charities and how people can trust a charity, not just yours, but how can people trust a charity? I think this is really important, and... You know, it is with such a competitive world out there, the charity world, that people will quite reasonably use any excuse to avoid donating. And um, they'll say, I oh, know, I've, I've read something the other day about this charity that was found out and they've been shown as being shonky and the money is being simply used to buy their first-class tickets around the world or whatever. Um, you're right, there are shonky charities out there. There are people who do the wrong thing. It's very, very easy to work out who's... A reliable, trustworthy charity or not, and there are there are websites that you know, with a couple of clicks on a on your computer, you can you can assess the the the, the reliability of any and the honesty of any any website. And the simplest one we have in Australia is the ACNC, the Australian Charities and Not for Profits Commission. So mm-hmm. this is a national this is a um, national government federal government initiative where every charity can elect to be registered with this organisation. And if you are, if you want to continue to appear on that register, you have to follow certain guidelines. You have to have transparent audited records. You, yep. have, to, you have to advertise what proportion of your donations actually go to helping the people or the cause that, you, that you're claiming it does. And, and if you fail on that, if you, if you, if you don't um, 
live up to those rules, then you are struck off that um, that register. And there are many struck off every year. That's the simplest way to do it. Um, go on that side and, 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 and make sure that they live up to the regulations that, that, um, that AC, NC um, group have, have um, demanded. And if not, just steer away from them. Very important things. I know you can often see how much actually goes to a charity, how much goes to the admin, because there has to be some admin cost to any charity. Mm. But in proportion, it's, it's very, very important um, for people to be able to know those sorts of things. I agree. And it's, it, it's a hobby horse of mine, to be honest. I'm disgusted with some charities who will sometimes spend more than 50% of donations on administration. So-called admin. Yeah. So-called admin. You know, and one of our things we crow on about is that at the moment, all of our administrative costs are covered by other things. So every single cent of a donation goes to the charity and people say well how can you do that you've got surely you've got costs you've got your website costs you've got um, you've got stationery your, your electricity how do you do that we're fortunate enough to have an ultrasound group here in australia who donate all their profits for those administrative things so at the moment all our administrative costs are covered by that ultrasound service that's awesome yes well done then <laughs> yes. ray we have run out of time so if people want to buy your book mm. how are they able to do that the best way at the moment is to buy that online. Come online to our website, and that's, it's very easy to follow the links on the website. That website, um, a4wh.org, a4wh.org. And the four is a digit number four, not an F-O-U-R. And that's Australians for Women's Health. That's our organisation, Australians for Women's Health. Yeah. And your book goes on sale. It's on sale pre uh, pre-sales now? Yeah, people can pre-order it now. And, and um, th- at the moment, there's limited copies and, and, and uh, we hope that will change. But, but if they go on the website, they can pre-order that now and then it will be released officially in, um, what, six days' time? The 1st of the March. Very exciting. No, not March. the 8th of, 8th of March. Sorry. March. Yesterday March. was the 1st of March. Uh, yeah. Oh, 8th my of March. goodness. I've lost track. <laughs> Ray, before we go, how have you changed working in Nepal? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? I, I was so naive when I first started doing this work. I, I thought that um, you know, we would just go over every, every um, few times a year and go and do the surgery and we'd fix the world. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, uh, it's so much more than that. It is, this training people over there is really important. I guess, how have I changed it? It's understanding more about the best ways to provide medical care to underprivileged women. I, I know much, much more about that than I did. And looking back to how I was um, eight, nine years ago, it, that's kind of embarrassing to know how naive I was then. But I've also changed because we, I realise now what we take for granted here in our country. We, we are so, so privileged. And we whinge about mine, what, what often are such minor things. And, and then you need to pull yourself up every now and then say, Yes, I've got. Yes, I've got this annoying rattle in my car, and, and I pull into the mechanics, and they can't find out what it is. How annoying! That get, is over so it. get over get it. Get over it. Get over it. When you spend time with these people who have just so little, and yet still somehow manage to put a smile on their face, yeah, um, you you realise um, you you, you realise just how lucky you are. So, how have I changed? I take a lot of less stuff for granted than I used to. Don't sweat the small stuff. That's another way. That's another good way of saying that. Ray, thank you so much for coming in. This has been a brilliant interview because sharing such um, 
a wonderful story about the things that you and your team are doing in Nepal. Uh, actually having a physical book that people can now read, a story based on fact, Heartbreak in the Himalayas. It's just wonderful and congratulations. And I will be podcasting this. So for the listeners, there will be links on social media and on my podcast to how you can find Ray. But again, once again, Ray, the website. So a four. That's the digit for wh.org, a4wh.org. Will you come back one day and talk more about women's health? Oh, I'd love to, Karen. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> My pleasure too. Bye, listeners. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, ageing is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all nine to five It's a wonderful Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Live out our dreams, just you and me Let your heart be alive There's no time to waste Gotta go get the most out of time This treasure that you've got to find, baby, don't be shy. Let's go and take that ride. Taste the sweet and the spice, everything nice. Let your heart be alive, baby, just let your heart come alive, honey. Let your heart be alive.